Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today to wind down our winter of wargaming, we welcome back our elite irregular panelist, Dr. Bruce Garrick. Hello to all of the gamers. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about war games a little more generally uh, than we've been discussing them these the, these past couple months. Uh, in particular, we're going to be talking about uh, specificity in in war game design, and this is something that sort of grew out of a lot of conversations that Bruce and I were having uh, during my visit there a, a week or so ago. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, just to just to give you a, a little framework for that, um, the the games that. Bruce, you and I were sort of sitting there in the ever-growing stack of games we meant to play uh, during that weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the ones I think that we gravitated to most strongly tended to be very specific to a, a given topic. Uh, not just that they they tended to not... They tended not to fit your your classic like ASL model, uh, a million cardboard chits, each representing a unit, and it's all about tactical movement. Uh, they they tended to be maybe a little more customized to a very particular uh, type of of contest, military contest, or in the case of Churchill, uh, military political. And uh-huh. we tended to steer away from maybe a little more of your classic what what is sometimes called the beer and pretzels war game, and. I have found that that's kind of the direction my my tastes are running overall. And one thing I've been trying to sort of tease apart is whether I've just gotten a little burned out on the classic war, like style of war game and am gravitating towards these more specific types of games uh or if or if there's something deeper going on here that's leaving me unsatisfied by these uh more mm. tactical systems. Oh. Okay. Well, that's uh, concerning. I think you, as, as your physician, I would, would recommend uh, close watching, close observation of the situation. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, well, first of all, <clears throat> the, the the stack of games that we could have pulled out and played, I mean, I could have gone to the moon. Um, it would have been uh, great to have you here for a week. We could have just uh, pl- you know plowed through a whole bunch of stuff. We'd have definitely played like four uh, or five games in that case. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, well, I mean, so so there you go. You know, it's, there's a there's a we were talking about playing Paths of Glory. Um, you know, we were not able to get that. It's just it's that game's just too. I mean, we we could have played Paths of Glory all day um, Saturday instead of playing Churchill. I think Churchill was a better choice just because of uh, it, it's a it's it's so different. I think it's something you you clearly um, uh, I, I felt you needed to sort of get into your into your repertoire arm, armamentarium there. Um, <clears throat> but you know. The kind of specific game that you're talking about that could be, um, you know, described as I said beer and pretzels, but I think you're, you you just mean more a more classic like here's a war game, uh, like I'm playing an actual war game, like it's a game about war with you know hexes and and their square counters and they have two or three numbers on them and I roll a die and whatever. Um, and the problem with those games is that I don't first of all I don't think they teach well. Um, I think that there is a lot of uh, setup and, um, you know, it's just, if you're here, you were here, you showed up on, uh, you know, Friday morning and left Monday morning, uh, sorry, Sunday morning. So you you were basically here for 48 hours and between, you know, sleeping and eating, uh, we had a certain amount of time. Now, I think that the, um, the types of games that you can sort of teach somebody in a short period of time that are interesting, that's not a giant, I mean, and <clears throat> that are not Euros. Um, it's in, in the wargaming scene, that's not a giant, uh, a giant number of things. I mean, we did coin last time we did triumph and tragedy. I mean, there, there, there are games you can do, but I, th- I think you're right. I think they, those games tend to be, um, games that play in a more Euro kind of way. Um, we did sit down with Kim Kanger's Dien Bien Phu, and I tried to explain um, why I thought that was such a brilliant game. Uh, we played a turn. You saw how that worked. Uh, is that a game that you could see yourself, like, continuing to play? Oh, in New you, York. That, and, that's, yeah. and that's what I find interesting, is that I think you're broadly right when you say, like, I, like 
what I'm describing is sort of um, a retreat from your classic, like, uh, counter represents a unit, and there's lots of dice, and there's lots of little, uh, you know, unit icons running around the map. But what's interesting is that uh, Kim, Kim Kanger's uh, Dian Bien Phu superficially checks a lot of those boxes. Yes, it does. But it doesn't play like a lot of the games that share that superficial appearance, right? It it actually, in its dynamics, uh, has that quality of specificity I, I'm trying to bring out. And, uh, to give you a little little more context, Bruce, uh, actually, the <laughs> I was on the uh, Waypoint podcast, which is the site uh, I just joined in this past week, and uh, Austin Walker sort of called my bluff and made me talk about Dan Bien Phu, because I've been, I've been sort of talking it up in the uh, pre-show. Uh, so uh-huh. God knows what that general gaming audience made of my, oh, my description wow. of Dan Bien Phu. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, but it was it was definitely like one of the most exciting uh, war games I've played in in literal ages because I think it still had a lot of the stuff that I remember loving about those classic types of war games. Right, there is that sort of cut and thrust of the units and, and running them around, but then there's also a really interesting set of like uh, risk reward elements, uh, and a lot of internal tensions that are specific to both sides that you don't find in your average war game, uh, which I think makes it play a a little differently. And also it feels a little bit like it's much more vivid and evocative than a lot of war games, Mm -hmm. right? Like I think, you know, taking the advanced squad leader, uh, example, some scenarios are very good and do a great job of like recapturing a certain moment, but it's a, but it's a system that's designed to sort of fit a lot of different places and times and leaves a lot to your uh, imagination and willingness to sort of engage with it to sort of transport you to that to that place and time. Dnbn Fu, I think, leaves <laughs> asks a little bit less of the player in terms of that and sets a more convincing backdrop for the battle it's modeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I think that that's a that's a fair way to describe it. I think that one of the one of the things that you have to do with uh, with game like Advanced Squad Leaders, you have to put a whole bunch of stuff in, and then leave stuff out that you don't need, or put extra rules in for the things that you're gonna need. Uh, you know, it's sort of like a like a you come in with a giant toolbox, and you're like, okay, well, I don't need the ratchet, and I don't need the you know adjustable wrench, but I do need these three kinds of you know pliers or whatever, needle nose, and some other things. So, the the thing that um, you know, and I one of the things I suggest that you do, which you did, which was great, that you watched a couple of my my DNB and food videos because. If you watch the Citadel video, it's a, for the listeners, it's a it's a game about Dien Bien Phu that was done in 1977. And what they basically did was they just decided, hey, we're going to have a game and we're just going to put everything in about the battle that we can put in. And we're going to be very literal with everything. So, you know, there there are no movement factors. You just move as far as you want because... It's perfectly logical in the time frame of the game, any unit could theoretically move the whole map. I mean, that's it. They could have done it. Um, so let them. And then, you know, you just give the implications of that, which is that you, uh, you know, you have to stop every so often to um, to suffer from defensive fire and, you know, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. But the problem is that that, I think, ignores or 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 harms the game in a way that computer games i think of have, one thing that computer games really uh, understand i think a little bit better maybe not computer war games is pacing and if you force people to do a whole bunch of stuff then the, the interesting stuff gets drowned in the uh in the minutiae right and if you see watch the video you see that there's like eight million aircraft and you're like okay i gotta put this aircraft so even if there's some aircraft that you're trying to bomb some key unit that's really important, you've got 30 other aircraft, and it's just irritating, right? I mean, it doesn't do anything for you, or for me, for some people, I guess it does, to have to place all those other aircraft, especially if a lot of those combats are not only are they irrelevant, but they're going to complicate the combats that you actually are interested in. So what Kim does is Kim basically says, oh, well, the French Air Force really didn't do anything. So they're one counter, and they have a negative modifier. And if you roll lucky, hey, maybe they'll, you know, do a little damage. And it actually, if it's in a 
key uh, point of the battle at some point, well, then there'll be a little, you know, a little change to history that the French, the French Air Force will have come through in, the pin, uh, in a pinch. But that's not what the game's about. And it doesn't force you to go through all that stuff. Um, it decides what it wants. It decides what the things are that are important and that will flow and how to, you know, how they'll fit into the pacing of the game. You've got to pace the game so you take out some things that are not interesting. The The way the scale works, I mean, <clears throat> the game, I think the scale is uh, like two to three days per, per turn. Yeah. But in the tactical phase... Units can't move all that far. I mean, they move and then they get like five movement points. So what they're simulating is what Kim decided. I'm just going to simulate the actual attacks. And the two sides couldn't keep up, you know, attacks every single day. That's not how the battle went, right? There were bad, there were attacks and then they, there was a lull and there were attacks and there was a lull. So why give the player the ability to do something if that's just not how, you know, how things worked if there's no benefit to it, right? In some in some cases, you let players do things, and uh, if they do them, then they suffer the consequences. But if you let players do things that break the pacing, then not only are you breaking the pacing, but a lot of the things that don't work, there's no benefit to them. So Kim's just like, okay, so uh, you get to, there are these unlimited moves that you can use to move across the valley, et cetera, et cetera, because that was possible. But then once you line up for the battle, once you decide you're going to make an assault, you only have five movement points. So that's where the zones of control come into to effect. And it actually, I think, works. Um, uh, Don, that you uh, played Triumph and Tragedy with, he, when we played it, he was just like, this feels so exactly right. This feels like this is the battle for whatever reason. And, and you could go and, and point to a number of different things. But they all, the way that they're all put together is what makes that so specific and so special, I think. Yeah, like, so when we were, when we were playing it, uh, I was playing the French. And mm -hmm. something that became very clear is every single thing you do is almost stealing from your future self. Mm -hmm. uh, that literally everything is finite. And so you really do have to be thinking, like, if you you know, put it all on the line to defend this outer strong point and bring in all the artillery. Is that artillery going to be available for combat in a couple days? Because it has to be flown in. That all that ammo has to, be, has to be flown in. And then it becomes an increasingly um, iffy proposition as to whether or not the supplies you requisition will actually arrive in the in the mix that, that you wanted them to. And so, like, you know, if you don't, supply enough artillery you might end up taking more losses which means there's a greater strain on the medicine that's maintaining your forces and allowing you to bring wounded forces back into the fight uh but if you expend all that artillery and and try to preserve those troops uh then it's possible that you know in a turn or two there's going to be a night of attacks where you basically don't have any artillery fire to provide uh at which point you know you're you might get rolled up in a turn so and I, and I thought that was a really a really interesting thing because okay something else that i think a lot of war games do is they get very reductive about what a battle turns on right it literally comes down to well how good were their tactics did they did they get the did they get the flanking bonuses did they maneuver around and you know that sort of thing, and it sort of creates this idea that, uh, you know, the general is always this this godlike force, and 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 battle is just this game of chess uh, between you know two players, where there's not a lot of other factors besides how well you deploy your forces. And I think what I love about Dian Bien Phu, uh, about about Kim Kanger's rendition of it, is that it's not really turning on tactics. Like they're involved, they're they're part of the conversation. But it's really about husbanding resources for this endurance battle. 
And both sides have to have to be considering the fact this is an endurance battle, right? Like you can't go all in all the time. You have to kind of have those turns where you you know rest against the ropes. And I thought that was so fascinating. It's such a it's such a change from a lot of your more traditional war games where it's just okay, move this guy around now. Com- now combine fire, destroy that unit. This is more. It, it almost doesn't matter what the you know specific movements are. It's what did it cost you in terms of materiel. Right. And, and, it, and it also, you know, and your, your material is very, well, the material, the, the, the supplies are variable, but the, the thing that's also variable is your units can perform well or they can perform not so well. And it's, you know, it's, it's a little random. And, uh, you know, that's what Kim, I, you know, I asked him when I had him on, the, on uh, Three Moves Ahead uh, a little while back. I said, look, uh, you know, where did this mechanic come from? He said, well, you know, in the battle, there were really, you know, good units that sometimes didn't perform so well and there were some terrible units that uh you know had their moments of glory and and that's possible in the battle and um you know it created also the other thing he didn't want he said he didn't want people to be able to just sort of like as you said reductively uh figure out okay i have to move here that'll give me those odds for this thing because you may not get those odds because your unit may just not perform and uh and i think it really adds up to you know, the battle, the best games tell good stories. The best stories are told about, you know, the, the, the or the best battles have the best stories told about them, or they are the best stories inherently somehow. Dien Vien Phu is a great story. And this system is is a way, in way you know, a way to capture that really well. I think that uh, it sort of, it lends itself to creating an interesting narrative as you're playing. You know, each time you sit a division, you're like, okay, well, I get a little bit more morale back, but then, you know, well, he's going to just, uh, you know, he's going to consolidate and, and reorganize those strong points, and he's going to rotate some troops in, and, and yada yada. Um, it's a very, it's it's a really a very interesting ebb and flow, and of course, if we'd you know been able to play ten turns, then you would have seen that even better. But uh, but that's the kind of specific you know design that I don't see that often um because it requires a, a a ton of well first of all you have to arrive at the right situation right i mean two lines of knights meeting in the middle of a stream and just crashing into each other i mean that's you know there are battles that are plenty of medieval battles like that right but they're not that interesting um so you have to find the right situation and they, then you have to sort of go in and it's like you know you're a whittler you know you're whittling away all the junk, and then you're just leaving the things that that need to be there. And I think too many too many designers decide that they're just gonna, well, you know, we got to model this, we got to model that. It's a very that's how that's how I feel a lot of computer games are. Yeah. Um, because I think part of that is because the audience just wants more stuff, right? Because there's no cost. Whereas in a you know in a board game there's a ton of cost right i mean there's there are games that i had that we could have played but there's such a cost to just getting them out on the table putting all the counters where they need to be and then each turn manipulating all of them that it's just not worthwhile i mean i i I showed you um uh you know some games that had uh you know nice artwork and tons of great counters and looked really good but there's no way we're going to set that up and play it so you have to have a uh you know you have to know what your what your objective is, and of course, games that take three hours to play are going to take are going to come out a lot more often than games that take thirty hours to play. Um, so I think that the, the the whole idea of you know there are games that you know we could have pulled out that would have been um, you know more traditional. There would have just been a, a higher game tax to pay to to get it to get it played. And yeah, I agree that there's there wouldn't have been as much that I could have shown you and said, oh, check out how cool this is, right? Because I thought the the Kim Kanger airdrop mechanic is just one of the most genius things I've yeah. ever seen um, because it focuses your attention the entire time, right? And, I mean, you have to, there aren't a lot of things in a lot of games that do that. I mean, sometimes, you know, uh, I mean, what's the, what's the thing in Civ that's such a pain? At the end game, you have to move all these units and you have to, you have to manipulate all these cities. And it doesn't matter because it's not the focus, which is what happens with a lot of big war games where I think you're you're moving a lot of stuff as a sort of cosplay, but it doesn't actually affect the, the outcome. 
Yeah, and something else that is going on in Fu, by the way, is that um, the airdrop mechanic is actually very dramatic, which is right. which is actually something really cool, right? Like, yeah, we have a like I have a bit of an obsession with logistics on this show, but I've actually never seen it done as like vividly and uh, excitingly as in this game where. You know, handled a different way. So, so the way it works is like there's an entire grid that you lay your your supplies out on, and this mm-hmm. is sort of what each which what each plane is going to be bringing uh, for this for this turn. Mm-hmm. And then you roll dice, and again, in sort of keeping in in with the uh, general theme of like swinginess in in this mm-hmm. game, uh, a simple die roll can mean that uh, a lot gets through, like almost everything. Or mm-hmm. it can easily mean that basically nothing gets through. Uh, mm-hmm. It can it can be that drastic, um, and then you roll additional dice to see which particular planes don't make it. So you don't even have control over you know you know okay only like eight of your planes got through. You can't decide which eight got through. You just have to figure out which eight got through uh, using using the resolution table. Uh, right. Which is really really cool because it you it sort of recreates that moment where you're sort of there on the ground looking up the sky watching the you know the shoots coming down with the supplies mm-hmm. and it could be anything you know you could right. have that moment where you're praying to God you just need medicine and bandages right and you open the crate and it's fifty caliber ammo and hand exactly grenades. yeah right yeah because that's what because you had decided that you were going to load up the planes with medicine because you need to get some people out of the wounded box and that costs six medicine. So you're going to do that. But, um, and you're never, you know, it's, you're never safe because, you know, I think we just, we talked about this uh, when you were here that in another game, if you're, you know, let's make this as literal as possible, right? Let's take every counter and put it on a plane and, and, fly it in right one by one i'm 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 making the most literal translation of reality to cardboard as possible well if i really want the medicine then once the medicine flies in i don't care right and conversely if i'm if the medicine's flying in last then I'm just like kind of get me to the medicine that's all I, I really want the medicine right but in kim's construction because you're rolling on a grid you know let's say that there are for the for the listeners what happens is you know you fill up a grid that might have you know 18 slots on it and it gets smaller and smaller which is by the way another great visual uh sort of marker which is that as your drop zone gets smaller you start taking uh Viet Minh counters and placing them in the boxes so you can't put your stuff in it so it just it just beats this shrinking little perimeter where the planes have a smaller and smaller place to to drop their loads um so if you've got six aborts, because that's basically how it goes, it goes zero, three, six, I think, and nine aborts. Um, what happens is uh, every single one of those rolls could knock out that that uh, medicine because uh, each roll it basically has the has the possibility because it's a grid. You know, you roll one die to read across and one die to read down. So each roll could theoretically abort. The stuff that you really wanted. So until the last, uh, and this has happened to me in the past, you know, I I have all these aborts and I get through eight of them, and then I I'm trying to get you know a a, a new uh, fresh battalion in because it's it's so important. The difference between fresh and reduced is is just the whole game for the French. And on the last roll, the guys that I had sent in uh, don't make it. And, you know, it's just so you're such a high. And then it's like, oh, but those are the guys. I just want one of those guys. But you, I was forced to pay attention to every single role because of the way Kim focuses it. And and he's able to to do it so that each thing, there, there's a focus that's on each unit. Even if it's a crappy unit, because of the way that the strong points work, you know, a crappy unit may be just as important to you as a, as a good unit because it's holding a hex that, if it's lost, contributes to the decline of the garrison. So, um so each element of the game is completely uh, sort of polished, and sh- and and it shines by itself. Um, it's, there's no there are no you know dark corners of the design where you're like oh, okay well I give me five minutes I got to move all these you know extra scouts that I don't really need anymore and they're pointless so uh, but I got to do something with them so I'm just going to move them off to the side here. 
Um, that doesn't happen in this game. Now, something else I want to talk about, and it almost seems a little bit related, but I think that they're just related in terms of their effect. We talked a mm-hmm. little bit about how um, the resolution tables in Dian Fu are pretty drastic. That mm-hmm. if you you know if you shift one column either way, you're looking at mm-hmm. vastly different probabilities, um, or or the probability of something that can't happen on another table. Yeah, exactly. Right. So yeah, you've got the possibilities changing pretty drastically between columns, and then probabilities changing within those, and it's 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 all pretty stark. Like a few fit like a few factors add up very quickly to pretty dramatically shape an outcome in a way that once you sort of grokked how the system works, uh, it's very easy to sort of calculate in your head. What you, what you don't have is uh, something I associate with a lot of, again, sort of more traditional war games, which is doing huge amounts of arithmetic and number comparisons and then going to a massive combat resolution table um, that looks like sort of a grade school multiplication table and working way through that. Um, where possibilities can change pretty drastically within those, but shifting them around is kind of a pain. It's it like it's 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 very granular in a way that can sometimes be uh, a little make it harder to sort of perceive what's happening, and also kind of makes it feel like a lot of your individual decisions don't really matter all that much until you made a bunch of the same decision and then they accrete into something greater. Um, And that also sort of puts me in mind of something that you brought up in your video on uh, La Vallée Du More, which is the question of scale. Where uh, something a lot of a lot of war games end up doing is well when when they when they set their scale right at the start they're actually making pretty profound choices about how to represent a a sort of combat and the reason that sort of put me in in mind of the way things resolve in dnbn fu versus other games is that a lot of games i think want everything to be very small scale they want, like, you know, why why move a regiment when you can move each battalion in that regiment? And why calculate the fire of that ent- entire regiment when you can add all the fire together with respective battalions? And that, that kind of um, decision-making model sort of, I think, proliferates through throughout a lot of war games. Uh, and I think, you know, they're, they're not the same issue, but I think they both sort of point toward a degree of obsession with granularity that maybe derives from the focus on, on, on the tactical. But the more war games I play, the less patience I have for that kind of granularity. You know what I mean? Like, if I'm going to end up moving those regiments, to like, if, if I'm going to end up keeping my regiment together, all those battalions together, they're effectively going to move the unit as a unit, uh, except in very rare circumstances... I don't really want to have to fuss with three battalions. Just let me move the one counter. I don't have to add three different numbers. Just give me the one big number. And I think that's uh, the, the, that's that's an element of a lot of war game design, particularly on uh, you know electronic formats, that I'm just rapidly losing patience for. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point that if if the thing that you're doing is not going to give you some benefit, then you don't want to see it. And if it's just going to give you some incremental benefit, then it's going to get lost in your general sort of like wading through the numbers. And what I think Kim does in in this game, once again, it's a combat resolution thing. You mentioned the thing about the columns. So what the columns do is that you have, if there's an assault, let's say some, some some guys are assaulting some other guys. One of four things can happen. The assault can go through normally, or it can hesitate, it can even be aborted, or the assault can actually achieve surprise. Now, each of those things could be, except for the abort, obviously, the abort, just the assault doesn't happen. Um, but okay, fine. Surprise plus one, normal zero, hesitate minus one, right? That Or, or put some die roll modifier in there, <clears throat> that's what a less talented designer would do. 
because, hey, I, I just simulated it, right? But the thing is that you pointed out on those, the, the, the hesitate, surprise, normal, those are columns. And a shift on a column is, is, a, is in effect a plus one modifier, except for the fact that there's a, now a floor or a ceiling, right? So if you roll a one on a surprise, it's automatically a two on the normal table. It's, and it, you can, and if you roll a, um, you know, it, it's, even if you have negative modifiers to it, right? If there's some, because there are modifiers to that die roll, but you can never, that, that modifier can never be canceled out. You've already shifted the column. So a surprise attack isn't just a plus one modifier that's going to get modified out by something else. It's an actual affecting the attack in a way that you're like, okay, well, I know that, that those guys surprise those guys. So when we roll, roll the um, combat uh, you know, resolution, I can't get a no effect on this if you're on a particular column, right? Whatever. There's a, there's a, there's a confluence of sort of that with the, the morale of the unit and that kind of thing. But the point is you're like, oh, that's a surprise attack. Those guys are at least going to cause those guys to take a step loss. And it's there's no foreknowledge here because you do each each um, each combat sequentially. So it's not like you know you're you're getting some kind of increased information or fore, foreknowledge. It's that everything is significant and in a way that it wouldn't be if you like you just said you know it was a, it was more modifiers tossed into the into the giant modifier hopper that comes out at the end and then you roll a die. Um, because you really want to get a surprise attack. And if you get a hesitate, then you have a ceiling. So even if you roll a six, you can't get, a, even if you get all the positive modifiers uh, from other places, even if you roll a six, it's not a six on the, the highest column. And if you roll a six on a surprise, that's like super much better than normal or hesitate. So it's, it's all the things kind of come together in different ways to, uh, to give you different results. And it, it focuses you on each aspect of the combat resolution uh, in a way that you were just pointing out. If you just if you have a bunch of numbers and you're like, oh, okay, well, this is two to one odds. And gosh, if I can get three more, it'll be two and a half to one, but I only get two more. And it causes you to do a lot of math. And that math is boring. And it's just a pain. And it's and pretty awful soon, for the other player, by the way. Like, as, as, for, yeah. as annoying as it is for the person doing right. the math, uh, right. God, it's, it becomes excruciating on the other side. Yeah, and here the other player is always involved because here the other player has to roll his defensive fire. So, you know, you're attacking a, 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 a unit with a combat strength of five, and you need to roll under your combat strength on two dice to, to get a positive modifier. Oh, you rolled a three. Perfect. Those guys are, they're, uh, or sorry, um, yeah, it, you, you, uh, you rolled a three. So uh, even though they're, they're kind of crappy, they're, they're standing up this turn. They're, they're, uh, they're going to be, they're going to, they're going to, Keep their positions, and you got to come get them. So, um, so you're going to get a, you know, they're going to get a uh, modifier to the die roll, and they're going to, uh, you know, do their thing. So, the um, the other, and then you do your your fire once you take the defensive fire. So each player is involved. There's a back and a forth, and then you go to the next thing, and then it, the sort of the map kind of plays it itself into the next stage, and uh, it's. It's a great storytelling vehicle, I think, because you're always, always engaged. Yeah, and something else I like about resolution in this game is that it also so clearly ties into the other factors that you're considering outside of combat, right? So, again, as the French, um, an easy way to make sure that the uh, Viet Minh never really even get a shot off, they never even get a chance to inflict damage on your unit, uh, is to get them to abort the attack. Uh, basically, right, and it, it mm -hmm. never happens. Uh, so you, it's sort of a situation where the artillery starts ze is zeroed in from the start. The French troops are ready and waiting, and from the mm -hmm. first, the attack falls apart. It never happens. There's 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 no real attack that that takes place. And if you can do that, that's great. As the French, that's what you want to happen because you win without fighting. Um. Yes, and 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 if you you look at the combat tables, that ability to abort units becomes more and more. Uh, likely as the morale of the attacking unit goes down. So as the Viet Minh start taking casualties, they start, the divisions start losing morale. And a morale three division is, is or regiment, or yeah, sorry, morale three division 
is in a huge trouble because the diff- even the difference between five and four is huge. If you're a four, there's going to be some aborts. And the Viet Minh can't afford to take a bunch of aborts because, like you said, then the French win without fighting. So that morale is, you know, one to five, huge taking a step from just one number to the next. Oh, God, something else I'd love to. Uh, there's an entire morale element to seizing the strong points, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That and and this this is another thing that I think that the game handles really well uh, that a lot of other war games kind of struggle with. You know, Troy talks a lot about the uh, the magic hill, right? And and he hates the mm-hmm. magic hill uh, yeah. because it's such it, it's so often an arbitrary thing. Uh, it, it's just okay, you control the space, and for the purposes of this scenario, that is hugely important for this battle. Sometimes it is. Sometimes you know, military history does turn on a magical mm-hmm. hill, uh, practically, mm-hmm. but usually because it it dominated geographically but here the strong points in and of themselves you're not adding up how many like uh, well we didn't get to the end game maybe you are but but you know from from turn to turn you're not worried about like okay i need to add up how many strong points i am holding because that's going to be my score at the end of the game the Viet Minh mm-hmm. need to be making progress like its right. soldiers are fed on victory that's right that's what sustains them and mm-hmm. if they're getting turned back assault after assault those guys stop feeling like there's a point to making that assault. You know, right. they're they're brave, but they're not suicidal. Right. Um, and that's a really cool thing. So you, you have this element of the French have this incentive to pour it all into every defense if they can, right? Because if you can just mm-hmm. stymie them, the involved division will start to lose faith that this is even a winnable battle. And then right. the next attack will be easier. And mm-hmm. the Vietnamese commander has a lot of incentive to just like eat whatever loss is necessary because it'll be right. harder tomorrow. And and mm-hmm. I love the way that that ties into the elements of the the Viet Minh commander needs to be husbanding that morale and figuring out like, you know, what what strong point needs to fall tonight. Um right. and the French commander needs to be thinking about how much is it worth expending in this one defense. You know, where's yeah. my maximum bang for the buck? And and I just adore that. And the artillery is so important to getting those aborts and preserving your forces. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's just again, it's it's a really neat way of like involving these other elements of the game in each combat interaction. It ties back to these other like meta concepts that drive the game. Right. Yeah. And the the thing is though, you need a situation that lends itself to that. Right. I mean, like I said, the the, the knights smashing into each other is is really difficult to get uh, to get a good uh, you know what's what's the war game there. Um, you know, I was looking at some, there's, there's a battle of Hastings, uh, game that's out, uh, that I haven't played, but I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, I, I look at it and there's some, you know, there's some, uh, Normans lined up and, uh, they're on, looks like kind of like a beach area and, uh, they're, uh, they're lined up, they're just in a line and they all kind of look the same and they have swords and then they fight other guys. And then there's just going to be a, somebody's going to win. Um, that's a very traditional war game approach. Um, there are, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're not their weapon difference. Maybe they're not, there are some leadership differences, right? But at some point, if you're going to do that, there are going to be some numbers and you're going to have to do those numbers. Now, I'm sh- sure you can focus either, you know, there are tricks to focus on each particular combat, but what's your, what's your, um, What's your instinct going to be a designer? Well, gosh, let's let's try to differentiate the different types of armor and the different types of weapons, and then you know, all, and now you're going down to the minutia rabbit hole, right? And as you make each decision, is as you make each unit have more factors to take into account, each factor becomes less interesting. So it really is kind of a synergy of system and situation that I think um, not all battles. Um, kind of lend themselves to. I mean, there's the reason that, the, you know, that there aren't that many, uh, there aren't that many games about certain battles in the First World War because just not that interesting, right? Um, they may be interesting on a, in a larger way. Um, there are not that many battle, interesting battles, uh, you know, in the Crimean War. There's some interesting battles, but, you know, there's there's just, there's stuff that, lends itself to this and stuff that doesn't. I think also there's 
a tendency for a lot of battles not to get their own bespoke system around them, Mm -hmm. right? That, uh, like, one of the interesting things about this Dien Bien Phu series you did uh, Mm -hmm. is that it does, it's sort of like, you know, four ways of looking at a battle. Mm -hmm. And each, each, approach has some really interesting differences and you unpack that really well uh but 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 kim's felt the most customized right like Mm -hmm. citadel the citadel like for for all that it's trying to model like literally every single thing happening in the battle Mm one-to-one it also feels like it's using a lot of generic components to achieve that end if if that mm-hmm. makes sense, right? Like I think the mm-hmm. big thing, the the thing that jumped out at me the most that seemed uh, sort of special and unique for Dian Bien Phu mm-hmm. is the fact that mm-hmm. you're physically landing planes uh, in in mm-hmm. on the airstrip, you're, or you're trying to at mm-hmm. least. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, it, you're still using very traditional war game elements that could be modeling World War II squad combat on the eastern or western front. Doesn't really matter, but it's it's these familiar components. Right, mm-hmm. every encounter in Dien Bien Phu is informed by this entire design that Conger has has sort of wrapped around uh, this one mm-hmm. battle, mm-hmm. and maybe every battle doesn't lend itself to that. Like Dien Bien Phu is an interesting case because it's kind of a um, it's a stage that the that the French prepared. You know what I mean? Like it's right. it's, it's an right. isolated, uh, yeah. contained battle. Uh, you know, sort mm-hmm. of by design, which is which is an interesting mm-hmm. aspect of it. But at the same time, I think a, a probably run into a lot in, in war games in general, and particularly uh, in electronic formats, is that it's not enough to have a design that works for one battle really, really brilliantly. It has to work for all the battles, all the similar battles. Right. And so mm-hmm. we just, last week we had an episode on a Scourge of War Waterloo, yep. which is sort of the Take Command series does Napoleonics. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I listened to your. I listened to the podcast. Yeah, and you know there there are a couple things going on. One is it's possible that, that just got too long in the tooth. Uh, that that mm-hmm. that engine is starting to buckle yep. under the weight of mm-hmm. something of the scale of Waterloo. But something mm-hmm. else that was a real unpleasant surprise was that it's a system that doesn't really allow for forts. It's a system that has no real concept of fortifications. Mm-hmm. They they don't exist in the battles that that engine has modeled in the past but at a certain point they're looking for well where do we take the system next waterloo mm-hmm. seems big we'll go there right. how different could it be mm-hmm. and waterloo hinges on these fortified strong points that's that's right. what the battle turns on and yep. so it's an engine that literally can't do it. it it can't bring waterloo to life not not waterloo as it was mm-hmm. and they kind of graft a secondary mechanic onto it to try to simulate the effect of these forts doesn't really work very well and kind of masks the successes that the engine still has in, in modeling Napoleonic combat. But it, it was just interesting to me that it was a case of the system was, it was a system in search of a new battle mm-hmm. and the place that was left to go was actually, you know, kind of secretly completely unsuited to that system, despite superficial right. similarities. Right. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I, I, I think that uh, the, the okay, we're going to make a game that, uh, that uses, you know, established assets uh, is a, a pitfall of, you know, any product that anybody's making that uh you want to maximize your sales for you know the minimum of investment right? i mean you i'm not saying i'm not saying that they're trying to be cheap i'm trying to say that they're trying to do what's economically feasible for them right i mean what are the chances that they're going to be able to put together you know a giant a you know big new engine that will do waterloo right and get uh you know sales that recoup that that investment probably not high if they may not have the ability to do that with a small team um so you know you're that's that's the next thing you do what do you do um i'll just put it in another situation i haven't had some board gaming as you know right i mean they have somebody makes a system like uh you know 
the the something something you know swords and sorcery system or it's not sorcery but so swords they, this, these swords and then you just make a whole bunch of medieval battles out of it um it it's i mean it it works it just every individual thing doesn't necessarily become compelling now there's there are exceptions to that obviously um i think that uh you know there there are some systems like uh you know great battles of alexander um that that do still um that do still work on that on that level but there are a lot of games that are just you're feeling like okay well this is this could just be whatever and they just change the numbers um and that's it's not it's not that engaging i mean you it gets kind of disappointing after a while you're like oh well gosh be doing something else yeah and i think it's a it's a frustrating trap particularly like on the pc where there's just a higher cost in general of making a right. game mm-hmm. and so you probably can't do what you know conger did for dmpn foo where it's okay we're gonna sink everything into really modeling the hell out of this one battle and it's gonna be mm-hmm. it's gonna be fantastic but how economically viable is that you know, probably yeah, well, I don't think it's very economically viable for Kim even either, because I don't think that I mean, I, I doubt that that's like a hugely selling game, not for any fault of its own, but because, you know, first of all, not a lot of people are going to play a DNBN Foo game. Um, and second of all, it's published by Legion. So there aren't I mean, they it's you don't find out about those games and GMT sort of sort of gets uh gets a little bigger i think marketing spread uh, and there's more more chatter about gmt games but um gmt but i yeah, see I mean, in I, most board game shops right i don't right. see Legion. so right and 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 you know even if you did um i'm not sure that you would uh you would necessarily um that you would necessarily see a ton of sales from it because i mean tnb and foo i mean it's not there are no americans there are no british uh it's this French versus Vietnamese, not 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 interesting to whole people except for hardcore uh, hardcore war games, which aren't you know they're not a ton of them to be honest with you. I mean, it, there's a reason that, but you know, latest Battle of the Freaking Bulge game sells uh, sells more than uh, than these things do. Um, but you know, there's there's I, I'm not lamenting. I'm just saying that uh, uh, even if you were to put all that effort into modeling a situation really well, it's not necessarily going to give you um, some kind of monetary reward. I mean, that the the game we're talking about that Kim has made is not his only fantastic game. He's got a game about the whole Indochina war that is called Tonkin, which is just amazing. And then he's got a game about the Algerian war for independence um, that's that's great in a different way. Um, I like the Algerian war game a little less um, because just for mechanical reasons, but it's still a great game. Um, but the Tonkin, I think, is is almost as or could be as good as Tina Info in different ways, in the way that it just it just captures the campaign so well. I, I just can't uh I can't describe how he's he's a really very thoughtful designer in, in, in what he he really understands how to put in game mechanics and and how to t- attach them to events and outcomes and when to just not have anything at all. Just be like, you know what, that's not part of this. I think that's a that's a really hard thing to do as a designer. So this is where I say that uh, after this episode, listeners, you should you should dig up Bruce's conversation with with Kim Conger, uh, where he discusses a lot of these games, and you're also going to learn a lot about uh, the collapse of Imperial France uh, post post World War II, because uh, Kim <laughs> Kim uh, seems like a a genuine scholar. Of of, yeah. of that topic, not just not just a great yeah. board game designer, but somebody who has really thought uh, through the ins and outs of that entire story and the way action in Algeria uh, is situated in the context of what's happening in China and vice versa, uh, which which mm-hmm. I find just utterly fascinating. It's a great conversation, um, and I definitely I definitely now want to want to play more of his games. I think mm-hmm. it's, but I but I do think. It is a rare thing that it's it's not just that you know it, that it's I think that it's all commerce driving what you see on the PC front. I don't think there's a lot of like computer war game designers who ever boil down a type of warfare 
to these these key constituent components the way the way Conger does with with Dien Bien Phu. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. maybe the closest example I can offer, uh, and it's it's been sort of cribbed so many times that um, mm-hmm. you know we sort of take it for granted. But mm-hmm. uh, Sid Meier's Gettysburg mm-hmm. actually does a really brilliant job of making Civil War combat easily relatable, understandable, but mm-hmm. also making it feel broadly correct. Right, that like, yeah. all these units are going to run at some point. Mm-hmm. There is no, mm-hmm. <laughs> there is no Stonewall Brigade. Not really. Uh, some units right. will stick longer than others, but what really matters is how you situate uh, your 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 positions. You know how. Right. But what matter? What matters in game terms that you pointed out, which is that the game then tells you that. Right. Yes. The game shows you all of the. I mean, I think you brought it up. In the, oh, in the, the podcast, of War show. yeah, yeah, that 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 uh, you know, Sid Meier's Gettysburg is telling you, okay, this unit has a unit adjacent, so it's going to have its morale go up. This unit has a leader behind it, so it's going to have its morale go up. This is how fast its morale is degrading. All those things, right, are not necessarily part of the design; they're part of the interface design. Yes. So, and they communicate to you how the design is functioning. Right. And if you've constructed a good position, it's so mm-hmm. self-reinforcing that the units involved in that position are almost impregnable, mm-hmm. uh, unless over the odds become overwhelming. Uh, any right. bad position, it's basically down to you know how tough are those troops, and if the position is bad enough, it doesn't really matter. Uh, that that bar right. is going to fill up fast enough; they're going to run. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's a lot of PC war games that uh, really do strip things down that effectively. And I don't think that's just a, just a function of, uh, you know, of, of commercial incentives. I also just think that the PC makes it so easy to throw a lot of numbers into the hopper to build mm-hmm. a game that has sort of those accretional aspects that, that we were mm-hmm. discussing earlier. Yep. That I think it makes it way too easy to, instead of being the designer as the sculptor, the, the person chiseling mm-hmm. away what you don't want there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes, you know, the designer as, um, you know, sort of clumsy carpenter uh, building on building additions mm-hmm. on a house. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, I think that's a key difference that, you know, it, there's a temptation in a lot of PC war game design that if the table of organization and equipment is correct for both sides and you've got a reasonably effective system, of uh, resolving what happens when those two run into each other, it's kind mm-hmm. of job done, and you you can put that out there. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think the the truly great war games, and I think the the Take Command series, and it's in, in, you know, in in sort of its heyday, was mm-hmm. um, yeah, a truly great war game doesn't do that, and it singles out those key factors that it really wants to call attention to. In Take Command's case, it was. Uh, how fluid and difficult to control the Napoleonic battlefield was, mm-hmm. um, and the the difficulty of relying on all these different subcommanders. But mm-hmm. that's that's gotten a little bit lost, uh, I would say. But the, but the truly great war games do do single those those aspects out, and not a lot do. Yeah, well, it's because I think that the 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 PC as a platform attracts people who are into that accretional kind of thing because that you know that's part of world building right it's it's that that the fact that all those things are in that hopper the fact that hopper's full of stuff makes the game more that that increases the game's verisimilitude and that's a certain type of experience and i've said before that you know that the the people who like that often don't like i don't see a lot of war gamers that are playing i mean there's some crossover but a lot of the people i play board games with don't play computer war games because it's just not it, it's a different kind of you know if, if you really get a kick out of how well something is abstracted then you're just going to die in in the in the the sort of morass of numbers and 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 detail that you get in a lot of computer war games and con you know conversely if you really like that if that Having all that stuff, if you know that you can look up somewhere and see that, you know, 6th Panzer has 12, you know, Panzer 3s left, then having a counter that you flip over or remove is going to bother you. So I think the I think the the number of games, I mean, look at all the complaints people had about Shenandoah's Battle of the Bulge. Oh, well, you're just rolling dice. Well, okay. Well, that's, 
okay, fine. That's that that bothers you, then you're not going to like that game. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, as we wind this down, Bruce, I have a question for you. Yeah. Yeah. So the last couple times I've visited visited you, um, we've played, I, I think, a number of maybe slightly more modern uh, war games. And what I'm trying to figure out is, is there a trend happening where we're seeing some of these more customized, uh, bespoke designs? Games like Churchill, uh, like Triumph and Tragedy, uh, like Fire in the Lake, like D&D and Foo. Oh, yeah. Or do I yeah. just have a really good sommelier who is sort of only serving up war games that are approachable in that way and suit the single weekend uh, setting? You know, so I'm curious, like, is it the, is it the Bruce Garrick selection bias slash filter? Or is there something, like, is there a broader movement at work in tabletop wargaming? Well, I think that I think that uh, while there is some selection bias, like obviously I'm not going to give you some crappy game that you're not likely to enjoy. Um, I think if you'd come over, uh, you know, whatever, however many years ago, in, you know, in 2000 when I was still in medical school, um, if uh, if you had come over then and said, "Hey, let's play some cool war games," I've been like, "Ah, eh, okay, um, well." There's Pass of Glory, but it takes a long time. Uh, we can play We the People. Uh, Twilight Struggle wasn't out. None of these. The coin system, obviously, was definitely not out. Um, you know, there were good games. Um, we would have played Down in Flames, probably. Uh, that's a that's a good uh, a good series um, that would have been enjoyable and and you could have learned fast, but. But I don't think that, I mean, I, I don't have the, um, I would not have had the ability to just pull out a game and say, oh, check this out. This is freaking great. Um, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, our, our friend and colleague Tom Chick has this idea of the, the time before good games. Um, and while there are exceptions, you know, there are an awful lot of designs that are really, really good that are post-2005. And I, I don't think that's an you know, uh, just a sampling error. I think that that's really how it is. I think that there's just so many more good games that you can play. I mean, games that have um, been released in the past, that get updated, that, where they clean up the rules. Um, I, I mean, the, the level of, of rules writing now that in some cases, uh, is some, some of the rules are still terrible, but there, there's levels of rules writing that are that is really high. Um, the component quality is obviously real good, but I just think the designs are getting better. I just think that people are, you know, they're looking to euros. Um, you know, there's no way that anybody would have had anything like coin, um, you know, 20 years ago. Cause I mean, they're blocks, they're freaking blocks. You got a, you got a cube. That's an NVA, you know, regiment, but it's ridiculous. Get that off my map. Yeah, you, you probably don't um, get fire in the lake without Agricola or something like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. Or, or it takes a lot longer, right? It's just you don't get you don't get those games without without some people being able to uh, to see how you can take representational aspects of gaming, and they don't have to have. I mean, there. Were, <clears throat> I remember there was some uh, huge deal where the um, at uh, I think it was at Origins in the in the old days, you know, in the eighties, Avalon Hill would have like a state of the company address, and. Uh, People would come and hear, you know, Don Green would talk about, you know, what what's coming out, and people would get irate if there were area movement games. They'd be like, well, how could you have a game with area movement? That's not real war gaming. It doesn't have hexes. You know, how do you know if the how do you know if the unit's here or here? What if he's there? Right? I mean, people would, people would, were really resistant to that kind of stuff. And uh, what you should actually do. Um, if you've watched two of my DNB and Foo videos, you should the, the last one's like probably twenty minutes. Sit, take it. Sit, Sit down when you're you're bored and, and grab a beer and just la watch the last one because I have um, I have kind of a little mini history of uh, of the the storm over mechanic and series and the way that things have changed um, that I think you would find very interesting from a, from a game mechanic history standpoint and um, and I mean there was a time when when really area movement was a dirty word it was like oh you know what. And I even, I even quote Courtney Allen. He has a quote. I can't remember exactly the quote, um, but it's in the video and you should watch it. Um, it's in my Storm Over DNB and Foo video. The listeners can, can look at that too, where you had to apologize that your game had area movement. It was like, 
okay, well, I didn't really design a real war game, but please play my game anyway. It's fun. Which is insane now. It's going to be completely insane. People would be, I mean, that, 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 that type of gamer has, has, has uh, either accepted or, or quit. Or they're buying or, every um, new thing that John Teller's coming out with. Yeah, well, that's a different story. But I mean, I do wonder yeah. if another reason you see, sort of see the shift in the 2000s is that so many of your classic war game itches are being scratched by mm-hmm. what's happened on the PC, right? That like you you know you don't right. need to make uh, Fall of France 1940 anymore, not mm-hmm. really in yeah. in 2005. Well. Well, they do it, and it's uh, and people play it, and uh, those games are uh, those games. But that's that's a different that's a different story. That is a uh, we should do a show on that sometime. Get some uh, different people. Well, we on. Can get, um, we should get Davio too, because I know that um, you know before before he was doing all the Hasbro stuff on on family mm-hmm, games. Mm-hmm. Like I think he was there around the time they were finally shutting out the lights on the uh, on the Avalon Hill division. Hmm. Well, I, I got to say that, you know, there is a robust, it's not large, but it's a robust uh, group of people who get those large, who have no interest in those kind of, um, those kind of uh, super um, numbers heavy war games uh, on the PC who do like the large games. And those are people who spend time on the weekends as social events playing games or they you know uh our our uh friend don who who played with us he once played uh vietnam 1965 to 75 like every every or not every day every like twice a week for like six months and they had it set up and they played and there are people do that do that with napoleonics people do that with uh ocs people come to conventions so they can do like team play of these games those are social those are social activities and that's the other thing to me, that uh, is sort of divides the gamers is that I would love to spend you know six hours in that kind of social activity with people making a making a uh, taking a shot at some large monster game. I have no interest in spending six hours on my own on a Saturday afternoon sitting at a computer doing the same thing. I, I it's not that's 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 just not my personality, and um, and I think that. There is still a market for people who want to, uh, you know, get involved in, in multiplayer. You know, we got six people sitting down and three people take the French. You know, you got left wing, center and right wing and the, take the allies, three other people and play and move. It's it's done. It's actually a lot of fun. I'm going to try to seek it out next time I go to convention. All right, I think that will do it uh, for for this week's show and and probably for this year's iteration of the Winter of Wargaming. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a couple games that I, I really wanted to get to uh, this year, and I swear to God, next next winter we're gonna we're gonna we're okay, gonna do yeah, it. We're, yeah, we're gonna do we're War gonna do in the West. It's oh, gonna yep, happen. That's for sure. And okay. the reason we're gonna make that make sure of that is because I'm gonna be playing it, uh, and we'll probably record that episode sometime around June, and just put yep. that in the bank. Uh, Perfect. You're playing it now. Uh, yeah, I just started. Good. Uh, just right. started. Backed right back out and went to the manual. <laughs> so yeah, I, I got yeah. uh, the same thing happened with um, Piercing Fortress Europa, which uh-huh. its supply rules are really interesting to me. So yeah. uh-huh. I, I need to unpack that a little bit. But yep. uh, my God, is it a a very Spartan uh, sort of war game? Uh, it's it's it, there's there's it's it's a clean presentation, but there's there's no uh-huh. frills to it whatsoever. Wait, which one? It's Piercing Fortress yeah. Europa. Okay. Um, All right. And I tried. I, I, I tried to play brother against brother, but we just no, no. Okay. Very sorry. Oh, very sorry, no, brother against brother. But you don't seem like my kind of my kind of Civil War game <laughs> at all. Um, anyway, Three Moves Ahead is produced as always by Malcolm Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at ThreeMovesAhead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, listeners, uh, <laughs> finally, listeners, uh, you are the ones who support Three Moves Ahead on Patreon. Uh, you can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, that was a terrible little ad lib after flubbing that, but we're, we're just going uh-huh. to keep these steel wheels rolling. Uh, Bruce, right. where can people find you? And more specifically, where can people go to find your Wargame videos? Uh, you can go to www.wargamespace.com. 
uh, and click on the uh, videos uh, tab. There's a the category for videos. You can go to um, you can go to YouTube and try to look it up, but that's really hard, so don't do that. Uh, or you can go to Twitter and follow me at, at Space Rumsfeld and ask me. But the best way is probably to go to wargamespace.com and uh, click on the videos. They are uh, all there. And do you have anything uh, new in the in the video pipeline uh, that's coming up that, that people should keep their eye? Well, I'm going to do. I'm going to do, I'm, I'm about a third of the way. Kim keeps bugging me, um, about doing, finishing the, the DNB and Foo series, which I absolutely have to do. I mean, it's very, it's very clear. Um, but then what I'm going to do is I already have some candidates rather than doing a four video or three video series about a battle or something, um, which is a lot of time. I'm going to try to do it. My next video will be about something where I compare games but I'll compare all of them in the same uh, in the same video. Uh, I think that that'll be my that'll be my next shot at uh, at video. But I, I I have some options. Not sure what subject. If you have some subject that you think is worth covering, and you can name specific games that you think I should uh, cover. Uh, so, for example, if if I said. Uh, I'm going to do, you could say, hey, Bruce, you should do the Russian Civil War and you should do GMT's Reds and you should do uh, Clash of Arms, uh, Triumph of Chaos. And uh, I know it's not uh, it's not uh, the whole Russian Civil War. It's just um, uh, the Brussels Polish War, but you could throw in uh, Strike of the Eagle. If you have something that's that specific, post it and I'll talk to you about it. Um, see if it's uh, something because I, I, I really I got to tell you, my mind is not I'm not saying I'm going to do it. I just will. We can discuss it. Uh, because uh, my mind is not made up yet. Okay, sounds good. And I, I do highly recommend the uh, DMD and Foo series. Uh, by the way, they're they're a lot of fun, and there are some there are some delightful cuts uh, in, in the middle okay. of that as well. The uh, the the drive by appearance of Milkup's uh, glorious cause is is pretty <laughs> great. Looks like a way nicer edition uh, than the one I've got too. But anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three MA. Until then. For Bruce Garrick, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.